Not a well-known story of me, but uh, I'll tell it anyway. When I was a, my, my grandmother lives in Florida, and so they would come up at the beginning of summer and visit, and then at the end of summer, my, and I, I would leave with them, and at the end of summer, my parents would go down to Florida for a family vacation, and so we would uh, ride home with our parents then. And so spending your summer with your grandparents is really cool if it's like two weeks. It gets kind of boring after like eight weeks. And so I did a whole lot of swimming and hanging around and watching whatever my grandfather watched, which during the day was either Matlock or Banachek or Columbo. All those shows were exactly the same, by the way, just different actors playing those parts. And my grandmother loved the Golden Girls. Okay, so there's so much Golden Girls on the television that it just got ingrained in my psyche, the Golden Girls. And one night I was around eight years old, and one night I go to bed, and I have a terrifying nightmare that the Golden Girls are trying to murder me. Now, that sounds funny, but it was terrifying, folks. It's a harrowing ordeal. Uh, and so my whole life, people have made fun of me for this dream because I woke up, and I'm, like, screaming in my sleep, and my, my dad comes running. He's like, what's up? What's going on? And I was like, the Golden Girls are trying to kill me. And uh, my dad was like, what? So I've been picked on for this quite often. And so yesterday, when the sock exchange happened, I ended up not getting these socks. But whenever I saw that they were left in the pile, I thought, I, I need to get those. And, uh, and so my socks have the whole cast of the Golden Girls on them. So I'll probably have some terrifying dreams tonight. Uh, but So uh, I think there are three other people here today that got Golden Girl socks. If you're here and you have Golden Girl socks, can you show your hands? All right, make sure you check those guys' socks out today because they're all wearing Golden Girl socks too. Eric, thanks for the four-pack. That was generous of you. Uh, so <laughs> That was fun yesterday, though, so hopefully we start a new tradition and uh, people can be on board with that. Uh, I was telling someone recently, my dad would get to church. He still does this, by the way. And the first thing he does is when he sits down in his seat, he takes his shoes off. And he does not wear his shoes the whole time he's at church because he said, if, the, if I'm in the Lord's house, I'm pretty sure he would say, make yourself at home. And he'd not want me to wear my shoes in his house anyway, so he'd just take them off. And so he's more comfortable that way. So I'm not putting my shoes back on just because it's inconvenient. And actually, now that I've done it, it's pretty comfortable. So thanks, Dad, for the shepherding. Um, <laughs> The last two weeks, we've been looking into this Advent series that we've been doing. Uh, so we want to look at uh, just the anticipation of Christmas, the story of Christmas. And, and really, uh, we, we, we talked the first week about uh, just being prepared. We talked about John the Baptist and how his whole life's mission, the whole goal of his existence, was to make sure that he prepared a way for Jesus. And so he's just a little bit older than Jesus, and uh, his whole life was devoted to just preaching and teaching and declaring the truth that there was going to be a rescuer. He was coming, and, uh, and this is what you need to watch for. And so his whole thing was getting people prepared, being prepared. Last week, we looked into just the, the be ready. Are we ready? Because there's a difference between being prepared and being ready. Sometimes we can think we're prepared, but when the moment comes, we realize we're not ready for it. Uh, and so we looked at, uh, at, at, at how a lot of times uh, we, we, we talk like we are ready to meet this Jesus, but uh, when the moment comes, 
we are not. And last week we didn't necessarily go back to John the Baptist, but I love the moment that we talked about two weeks ago where Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist has been teaching and preaching and he says, when he sees Jesus come through the crowd, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what he's saying in that moment is, there he is. The one I've been talking and preaching on, the one you've been coming down to the riverbanks to hear me talk about and to point you towards, there he is. And it's this moment where he wasn't just prepared, he was ready. And when Jesus turned that corner and came towards him, he was ready to turn everything on, to turn all the focus and attention on to Jesus. Is that the state of our heart? So today we're going to look at expectations, our expectations. So I think the whole story, the narrative of the story of the Bible actually points to these terms of being prepared, of being ready, and then what are, out of those things, what are our expectations? Does anyone want to admit in this place today that they struggle? The struggle is very real. That you set really high expectations for pretty much everything. Anyone? Okay. So did you see the hands go up? Some of them are sheepish. But those are the people that live in a constant state of disappointment, just so you know. Uh, well, my humor is not really taking root today. Uh, so if you set really high expectations, it's hard to meet those expectations. Am I right? Now, as a defense mechanism early on in life, I realized that if I set really low expectations, then I will hardly ever be disappointed. And, uh, and so, uh, and I say that as a defense mechanism because I wanted people to set low expectations of me. That way I didn't have to work very hard. So if my parents set the expectation that my son's going to at least pass eighth grade, then all I had to do was pass eighth grade. Uh, If my parents set high expectations, then I I was going to disappoint them, I felt. So I wanted them to set the bar really low. And so uh, I I think that if we set high expectations for things, and we should, by the way, uh, we, we can tend to be disappointed because in our, and we all do this, no matter how you're wired, we, we create scenarios in our head of what our expectations are. I'll give you, for, for instance, that I'm sure everyone can relate to. Have you ever had a tense moment with somebody? And you're not in the same room anymore, but you know you're about to be. And you create about 75 different scenarios in your head about how that conversation's going to go. Anyone? All hands should go up. We all do it, I think. If not, then maybe I'm more weird than I think I am. But, uh, you know, it's, it's like then we get to this point where in my, in my mind I'm like, well, he says this, then I'm going to say this. And then if he responds to that with this, well, I'm really going to throw it down then, and I'm going to say this. And then the person comes in the room, and it's like, all cool. It gets, res- it gets resolved in like three seconds. And then there's a part of me that's kind of disappointed that I didn't get to throw down. So in the story, the narrative of Scripture, there's so much anticipation, there's so much to prepare for, there's so much to be ready for that people took those stories, people took that truth, those prophecies, and they created a series of expectations for themselves. They didn't allow the narrative of a coming Savior to be the thing that dictated their expectations. They let their current state of existence form their expectations. So the right here, right now, the trials and travails of my life, that formed my expectations of what this Redeemer, this Savior, this Rescuer was going to be and look like. 
and all of the evidence that was riddled through Scripture to point us to what to look for, what to watch for when this rescuer, this redeemer, this one who is going to save us and connect us back to God like Devin talked about this morning. That one who was going to be afforded to us to bring peace back to God because we weren't capable of it ourselves. That one, we were the one, that, that's the one we were supposed to be watching for, to be ready for, to be prepared for. And the whole Old Testament is preparing our hearts for this. The whole Old Testament is this beautiful narrative about the heart of God and, and preparing us for Jesus. And so these, the, the people that lived throughout this whole timeline used their, 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 their current state of existence to dictate what their expectations were. And so they had really high expectations for what this Redeemer was going to be and do and live like and be like. So if you're, if you're, good, if you're here today and you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, it's in page uh, 591 of the book in front of you, the Bible in front of you, if you're using that. Uh, again, if you want to take that with you, I'd encourage you to take it with you. If you need a Bible, if you know someone who needs one, if you're looking for a Christmas present for a friend, there you go. You don't have to tell them you took it from church. It's okay by me. I just want to get as many the Bible in as many hands as possible. Um, before we go any further, though, I think it's important that uh, we just pray. If you don't mind joining me in a word of prayer here, Lord, uh, your word is power. Your word is, is magnificent and it is truth. And so many times we just make it say what we want, to, what we want it to say. So many times we'll read a verse and it'll speak to our current situation and, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll camp out on it, but we won't take the time to study what it really means. So as we open your word today, as we look and see what it means and the true depth of it, Lord, take this broken communicator, this broken vessel, and may your truth come out of my mouth. And if it's not of you, I pray that it falls onto the floor and is not remembered. But if it is of you, I pray that it strikes straight to hearts and does the transforming work that only you, your word, and your spirit can do. Uh, so, Lord, uh, may you have free reign in this place today, in me first, and then in the rest of us as we hear your word. Lord, may you be honored and glorified in this place today. So Luke chapter 2. Uh, this is a famous passage. You don't have to be familiar with the Word of God for this to be familiar to you. If you've ever seen Charlie Brown Christmas, which I believe came out in 1964, uh, then it, it, it's, it's played almost every year. It's, it's, it's very famous. People love it. It's this, it's this moment where Linus reads the passage. He, he actually recites it. So people the world over are familiar with this passage. But before we get into that, I want you to hear something that the prophet Isaiah wrote. And, and it's in Isaiah chapter 9. You don't have to turn there, but if you're taking notes, we're going to look at, at Isaiah chapter 9. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but from 9 and 10 and, and on through uh, uh, into chapter 11, you're going to see in uh, the book of Isaiah, this prophet Isaiah talk about the, the coming Messiah. That, that there's a prophecy uh, that for unto us a child is born. And starting in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah the prophet says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. Go into verse 7. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, we read that at Christmas, and it sounds so poetic, and it sounds so beautiful, and that's because what we've done in the English language is we've made it sound poetic and beautiful. But these words actually came out of some pretty deep wounds. They they came out of some, some oppression that the rulers of the people were under. I mean, these were deep wounds of an oppressive oppressive government system that was over top of these people and tell them they had no value. Ever since God's people get realized in Egypt as a nuisance or outgrowing or someone or a group of people that shouldn't have as much privilege because they were growing or they felt like a threat. Ever since that moment in Egypt, God's chosen people have been marginalized by every government that sat over them. And since the Exodus, they have been crying out to God for this Redeemer. Ever since the Exodus, there's a whole lot of history in this book. And the whole thing is wrapped up in God's people crying out to him to be rescued from their current situation. And every time it seemed like there was a glimmer of hope, another tyrannical government would come in and oppress them. So we get this prophecy in the midst of oppression and the people of God hear it and it brings them hope. The prophecy brings them hope. It's a reinforcement of what's already been promised throughout all of Scripture. It starts in Genesis with the the, uh, sacrificial, the the lamb that was slain in Genesis and to give animal skins to Adam and Eve. And from that point on, there's just been moments after moment after moment pointing to a Redeemer, pointing to a Savior. This is not new. Isaiah comes on the scene and is a spokesman for God, one of the most concise and full and robust prophetic books that we have. One of the most dynamic characters in Scripture is the, is the person, the prophet of Isaiah. He had a big personality. He, was honored, he, he honored God at every move. From the time he gets called into ministry to the time we see him go off of the scene, this is a guy akin to John the Baptist that just heard God and said, sure, I'll do that. No questions. Matter of fact, I was reading through the story of Isaiah when we found out that we were pregnant for the first time, and that's why Isaiah is named Isaiah. Because I prayed that his character would match up with this prophet. Someone who heard the voice of God and just was willing to do it. Even if it sounded crazy. Like the time God told Isaiah to strip off all his clothes and live naked for three years. Just to show the depravity of his people. And he without question did it. And I thought, that's awesome. That's awesome. Not that he's naked. But that he was willing to just blindly trust God. And do what God told him to do, regardless of what the fallout may have been. So here's this person who's well-respected, well-known. And early on in his prophetic experience, he makes this prophetic cry. He starts off this prophecy in verse 2 of chapter 9 by saying, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. 
And this prophecy is beautiful. I wish I could just go through the whole thing and just give all the symbolism and all the beauty of it. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to. But I would highly recommend you read through the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, especially read verses 2 through 7. See, Handel's Messiah makes this Prince of Peace sound beautiful. Handel's Messiah comes pretty much from this prophecy, word for word. If you've heard of that, I'm sure you've heard of it. But when it says Prince of Peace, just so you know, in verse 6, it actually, it, 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 it sounds beautiful in Handel's Messiah, but it actually translates more into the highest rank of rule. That would be the closest translation we have, but that's not as poetic, right? Prince of Peace, instead of saying it's the highest rank of rule. So the English language takes this and we try to make it so that it makes more sense and flows, and it's not a wrong translation, it's just not... It's not as literal. And this, this wording that we have, Prince of Peace, actually means highest rank of rule. And that's important for us to contextually understand the audience in which is hearing this prophecy. Because what happened was it led the Israelites to expect a mighty warrior. And they got one. They got a mighty warrior in Jesus. But again, they had used their the tyranny that they were living under for generations. Grandfathers telling grandkids, listen, this is what God did for us in the wilderness. And I know it might not seem that way to you right now, but I promise you, help is on the way. We need to stay faithful to the Lord. Fathers telling their children and then their children telling their children and they pass the story down through generations, every generation hearing the hope-filled story of a Redeemer on His way. So when they hear the prophet Isaiah say that a child is born to us, the son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now you're speaking my language, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Wise King. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, highest rank of rule, no authority higher. These are all true statements about Jesus, by the way. I think the people of God were completely okay with a baby being born and then coming into his own as a warrior. Have you ever heard of the term zealot? The race of people who were known as zealots were people who took this prophecy, took the promises of a coming king, and then they were sort of taking their own narrative to prepare a way. They were going to, they wanted to overthrow the Roman government. They wanted to see God's people reign again, so they were just basically given a head start to their redeemer in their mind. This prince of peace, this mighty warrior, he would, he would conquer <clears throat> the surrounding rulers and he would bring them peace. So that's what they expected. They expected Wyatt Earp to come riding into town and he was going to thump some heads and he was going to bring some peace. He was going to get rid of the lawlessness and he was going to get rid of the oppression and he was going to give them peace. That was the picture that the Israelite people had, the people of God. So keep that in mind. They're picturing this mighty warrior who at one point, they were even okay 
with John the Baptist's picture of, a, of the king coming out in and having this huge like coming out party that he was going to come on the scene and I am the king of kings, I am the prince of peace, I am. They were okay with that. Because when this guy comes on the scene, religious people who are telling us lies and the overarching governmental system of the day that's tyrannical, watch out because when he comes on the scene, watch out, he's going to just clean house. He's going to clean the swamp. So keep that in mind. That's the expectation of God's people when we get to Luke 2. So if you're there in Luke 2, let me read it. Now, just to give you a little brief update here, what's happened so far is that the birth of Jesus has been foretold. Mary takes this news to her cousin Elizabeth. Mary sings this beautiful song in response to the fact that she's carrying the Redeemer. This story that has gone through the ages that a Redeemer, a Rescuer was coming and that He would come in the form of a baby. And all of a sudden, this, this teenage virgin has, has been told by an angel that she's carrying that child. Put yourself in her shoes. That's a crazy moment for her. And this, what we get in Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 46, is this beautiful response. She, she just, just erupts in song. So fast forward, John the Baptist has been born, and what we get in Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, stop there for a second because it's important to recognize that we might overlook this, but the reason that Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem is because this governor comes on the scene and says, we don't know where all of our citizens live. We need to be able to have proper taxing, and I want to make sure that I'm not missing out on tax money from a citizen. So we got to get all our people to go back to their original place of origin, the place where their family got started, and once we get them there, we'll get a log of where all these people are now, and then we'll know how to collect taxes. And there was a prophecy that said the Redeemer would be born in the city of David. So isn't it just like God to use a tyrannical governor who's trying to make money illicitly by overtaxing the citizens, and God uses that guy's pride and arrogance to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to give birth to the King of Kings. The reason it's logged like that in this gospel is because it was such a unique moment in the history of the world. They wouldn't have said on December 11th in the year of our Lord because there wasn't such thing as a, a calendar per se. So they, they marked things by having important moments in history that they knew would carry on. And this was a huge moment in the history of people. So that's why it's marked that way. In those days, a decree went out. So pick up again. 
in verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Basically what it says at the beginning of that is, meanwhile, the same time that all this is happening, there are shepherds in the same region and they're out in the field keeping watch on their flocks by night. Verse 9, and, in the, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. If we were to start at the beginning of this passage and work our way through those 21 verses again and list out all of the things, this is an exercise that maybe you could do, list out all the things that happen in the birth of Jesus that defy all the expectations that the people of God had made for this moment. I'm pretty sure they didn't think you'd be born in a barn. This common girl, this carpenter, this girl that wasn't married, that had no prominence in society, that they would travel to Bethlehem that the best place for them to stay was in the barn, basically a cave cut out of the side of a hill. That this baby was born and then laid inside of a, a feed trough. Often wonder if how many times Joseph had to shoo the animals away from trying to eat out of where they eat because his baby was laying in it. And then... The angels of God, the skies fill with angels to announce to the world that the Savior has been born. And God chooses to do that on a remote hillside outside of Bethlehem to a bunch of social outcasts. Dirty shepherds living outside of the city, unclean men 
to work with unclean animals. On a hillside, of all people, that's who God makes his proclamation to. Could you imagine, verse 11, put yourself there. They say, don't fear, don't be afraid. But this guy's filled with angelic beings. So it's not like they're going to be like, oh, gotcha. I'm good now. Thanks for saying that. The sky is filled with angelic beings, not completely full yet because the, the, the heavenly host doesn't show up till 13. So there are angels speaking to them, which is terrifying in and of itself, I'm sure. Never had that moment myself. Verse 11, they look at these shepherds. Hundreds of years have passed. Hundreds and centuries have passed with this story working and weaving its way through all of humanity that a Savior was coming. If you had any semblance of Jewish heritage, you knew this story. It was, those, it was one of those stories you just got tired of Grandpa telling around the dinner table. Oh, he always tells a story about the Savior coming. I think he's losing it a little bit. The story was being told for generations. And now, as they're just out in a field doing their job, the angels show up, and this is what they say, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. For unto you is born this day the highest rank of rule. For unto you is born this day the highest rank of rule, your prince of peace, your mighty warrior, your redeemer. To shepherds on a hillside. And they run in, and they, well, before they leave, the sky literally fills with angels. And the angels can't, they can't contain it anymore. They have been waiting for this moment their whole existence in the heavenlies, being held back by God. When are you going to do it, Lord? When are you going to save them, Lord? When are you going to send their, when are you going to send them their Redeemer, Lord? When are you going to do it? And God finally says, Go tell them. My son has just been born in their presence, on their planet, on their turf. Go tell them. And the angels are like, finally. And so for just as long as human beings have been waiting, the angels have been waiting to proclaim this good news. And they get to finally speak. And when they show up, they show up big. And they fill the sky. And the only thing that erupts out of them is akin to the same thing that happens to Mary when she's so overwhelmed with this good news that she can't do anything but sing. And the angels fill the sky with a song. Can you imagine hearing it? Can you picture the bright lights? The sky, as far as the shepherds could see, are filled with angels and they're singing. And this is what finally, when they finally get to speak, they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God on the highest. You have a way to peace now. This is, the, this is what God always wanted. That's what the angels are crying out. This is what God always wanted. 
We've been in His presence since the beginning, folks. You have no idea what you're in store for. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And they just sing. And they erupt in song. Because they know what we have just been given. More than anybody does, they know. And they erupt in song. And they're trying to pass that passion onto these shepherds who immediately take it and go because they want to see what this is all about. And they're telling people. They left right away, verse 16. And when they saw this baby, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. What are you talking about? What? But not Mary. Not Mary. Nope. She's already had her mind blown. So her expectations have been far exceeded already. And she's just kind of taking it all in. And she's just treasuring all these moments in her. She just, she can't believe. It's so overwhelming to her this moment. So she just takes it all in. Oh, God. The shepherds returned. And what did they return doing? They returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They didn't leave being skeptical of the angel's message. They left longing to worship And they believed that they had just seen the Messiah and it altered their lives. But the people around, most of the people around didn't believe this. There were some that did, like Herod. He believed it because he felt threatened by it. And he sent out a decree that all babies under two would be put to death because he didn't want anyone to come on the scene as a king. Now, why would a king feel threatened by a baby if the expectations of God's people hadn't elevated so much that the warrior was going to come on the scene and overthrow the government? That a king is threatened by a baby is ridiculous. But those expectations are so heightened and that prophecy so strong and the faith of God's people to believe that what he was saying was true was so strong that a king was threatened by a baby. And he ordered that all babies, two and under, boys, put to death. Just like Moses, God intervenes. And Jesus survives. The expectations of God's people were heightened that a warrior was going to come on the scene. So this baby being born in a barn in Bethlehem just didn't match up with their expectations. So even whenever you fast forward to Jesus coming on the scene... Things are said about him, like, isn't this just a carpenter's son? Things were probably said about him, like, wasn't this, wasn't this the, the kid whose, whose mom got pregnant before she was married? So I want you to look ahead with me. Turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. That's on page 715 if you're using the Bible in front of you, by the way. 
Revelation chapter 5. I'm just going to read verse 5 and, and the first part of verse 6. Now, Revelation is a story of the, the Apostle John. He gets taken to see, in a prophetic way, the, a vision of what the end days are going to look like. He gets asked to write it down. And this is one of the things he sees. Revelation 5, looking at verse 5 in the first part of verse 6. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's where I'm going to stop. Because we're okay with the lion. That's impressive. This conquering lion who steps in and saves the day and stomps on the serpent's head. And that is true. And that is the picture of Jesus that we want. That is the picture of Jesus that God's people had throughout all of humanity. But listen to how he is not not just described, but seen with the eyes of John. What he sees in the end days is not just the lion, not just the lion that is conquered, not just the lion that is conquered so that he can open the scrolls and the seven seals. But between the throne and the four living creatures and these these crazy things that John's seeing, among the elders, I also saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. A lamb living, but pretty wounded looking, scarred, looking as though it had been slain. See, the lamb part is what I think makes us uncomfortable. It's what made God's people uncomfortable during the buildup to Jesus' birth. And when you go in for a job interview, you give your best stuff. Some people even go buy their, like, brand new clothes. Like, you look in your closet before a job interview, and you're like, none of this will work. I'm not getting hired. I'm not getting hired if I wear any of this. I'll go buy something new and get hired, and then I'll start wearing that. And we give our best stuff. We, we give the best examples of ourselves, right? We don't go into a job interview usually and say, no, I'm terribly disorganized. I very often forget appointments, and uh, I'm just a mess. But I think if you're gracious with me and help me out, I can figure this job out. Thank you for your time, sir. Right? I use that analogy to just talk, to talk about like, the view that we have of Jesus at Christmas. Yeah, we talk about the baby and we talk about this, this beautiful moment that he came into humanity and then he lived as this Savior that died on the cross. And we want to talk about the future when He's going to come back. We don't like to admit that He was broken for us. I've only watched The Passion of the Christ two times. And I've told Megan several times, I can't watch it because I can't picture that. But it's my own, it's my own mess. I can't picture Jesus broken. I, I have trouble with it. It messes with me. 
But that last scene when Jesus, spoiler alert, by the way, if you've never seen the movie, the last scene when Jesus comes out of the tomb and he walks and the sound, the music comes up and you see him walk and you see right through his wrist as he's walking and it's this beautiful ending of the movie. I can watch that all day long. The part where he got beaten up, spit on, abused, I'll accept that as the reality, but I don't need to visualize it. And I find it fascinating that our conquering king is symbolized in heaven after the victory as not just the conquering lion, but as the lamb who was slain. This lamb who appears as though it had been slain. I had to ask myself, am I okay with admitting my own brokenness? Because if I'm not willing to look at Jesus' brokenness on my behalf, am I willing to admit my own brokenness? Am I willing to admit that I'm a mess? Am I willing to admit that it's not just that I needed Jesus for salvation. I needed Jesus to walk with me and be with me every step of the way because I'm going to screw it up at any given moment because I am still broken and I'm still a mess. I am indwelled with His Spirit if I am redeemed but I am still a fleshly being who will sin because I'm not Jesus. I can't study the Bible enough to get sin out of my life. I can't attend church enough to get sin out of my life. I can't do all the right things to get that sin out of my life. I can't get the right education to get that sin out of my life. I need a Savior. And the only way that I'm going to actually understand what that cost God the Father to bring peace, to be the Prince of Peace. The only way is to understand that the Lamb just didn't conquer like a lion. That's the one I want to believe in. But that Lamb was slain for me. And that's what I deserved. That's what I deserved. I'm going to get victory in the end. I'm going to stand before my creator God because the lamb took the abuse that I deserved. And that's the only way to peace. Somebody had to die. Somebody had to get beaten. Somebody had to have beard pulled out in chunks. Someone had to get the crown of thorns jammed into his skull. Someone had to be beaten so much that his closest friends didn't recognize him. Someone had to be spit on and made fun of. Somebody had that treatment. Somebody had that. And it's what I deserved. And if I don't let myself go there, folks, Christmas means very little. So we can be prepared. And we can be ready. We have these heightened expectations. We don't let ourselves see ourselves as broken as we are. And if we don't let ourselves see that, We will not see the beauty of this beautiful baby. Imagine Mary, not just at the manger, but that same woman at the foot of the cross. That's why it was so important that she took all these things and treasured them in her heart. Because in that moment when she's looking at her baby boy hung on a cross and abused and beaten and tattered and torn, she had to believe it was worth it that she was making a sacrifice for us. And she was just as much a recipient of that grace of God as we are.
You see, if I, am I okay? Are you okay with admitting your brokenness? Because Jesus is. Jesus is okay with admitting that he was broken. Jesus is okay with admitting that he was broken on your behalf. He doesn't hide it. Jesus doesn't hide his worst moment from us because his worst moment is what we needed to have our best moment. And these build up to these expectations and these expectations that, 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 that derailed people's eyes from seeing a true Savior. And I think if, if, if we can see that, are we willing to live in eager expectation of your coming king? Are you willing to live that way? Are you willing to prepare the way? Are you willing to take this, this Christmas and allow it to transform the way you view yourself and humanity to see that you have victory and peace, a way to peace? That's what the angels were crying out for us to see. Look at what's been afforded to you. So the question I think we have to ask ourselves is, is he worthy? Is he worthy of that? The answer is a resounding, he is. God, you are worthy. Worthy of our worship, worthy of our sacrifice, worthy of our whole existence. So allow us to have a proper view of who you are. God, you call us into your presence. You, you offer us and afford us the grace of being in your presence because you carried our brokenness. You aren't just the victorious lion. You are the lamb who was slain. That's what we deserved. None of us could ever be the lion. All of us were going to be the lamb who was slain. All of us were going to be the ones who deserved that in the end. But you created victory for us because you gave us a way to peace with the Father. You are worthy. So as we ask that question, Lord, is he worthy? May our hearts fill like Mary's and the angels did and respond in song with the resounding, He is.